Shrinks Wrap is brought to you by West Coast Mindfulness Institute, a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians. Shrinks Wrap is a psychology podcast where we introduce you to leading clinicians and thinkers and their personal journeys through the field. While we hope you enjoy this dive into the psyche, please note that this podcast is not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. To learn more about us or to find a therapist, visit wcminstitute.net. All right. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is our second episode together with uh, Dr. James Bramson and me, Rafael Cortina. How are you doing, Jim? Doing well. Uh, so we are uh, experimenting with a new system here. And uh, what I realize is that uh, trauma can come in large forms and small forms, including technology. Yes. And overcoming the technological challenges to uh, the podcast is our mini trauma that you and I beautifully worked through together. Thank you. Yes, we got through it. So we, we already are ahead out of the game here. We got through the uh, That's right. figuring out technology part. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we were discussing before we went on air, so to speak, uh, some feedback we received from our first podcast. And I really uh, appreciate uh, the response we had, both of us had. and. Um, the people picked up on the uh, relationship that we have as uh, professionals, colleagues, and friends, uh, and what that, how that transmits uh, across uh, the airwaves, so to speak. So I was really pleased to know that our sense of ourselves and our relationship gets transmitted uh, uh, through our work together. So that's terrific. Yeah, yeah, it was exciting that um, this piece that that we. Uh felt intuitively that, that there was a good uh, communication. It's it's translating to what we want to do here and, and share in this space with other people. And there's a new, and we're talking about addiction, by the way, Raphael. So there's a new drinking game and, uh, and I, we're trying to deal with addiction. So if you have having a struggle with drinking and you hear me say, do you know, or I know uh, for every time you hear that, uh, please don't have a drink. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> A, a protective game. <laughs> Please do not have a drink. It's like, right? It's like, remember the old, there was a drinking game in uh, college, the Bob Newhart show called Hi Bob. Every time they say Hi Bob in the Bob Newhart show, somebody would have a drink. It's funny. I, I did not know that. Um, uh, <laughs> partially because because I went to school in Mexico and maybe maybe you're, you're a little bit older than me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's not say too much older than you. You know, I don't want to. You know, I want to fool the. You know, create the perception that we're. You know, we're closer in age than that. But we'll see. Yeah, but I do remember watching this really good show on on um, Apple TV uh, for all mankind. I, I won't give out any spoilers, but they're 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 in the moon, and they could only watch three episodes of uh, Bob Newhart and and. And high Bob is their 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 kind of like going ongoing internal joke for for the way they connect, right? So I could I could see where that comes from. That's mm -hmm. that's a very common phrase in that show. It's it, it is a common phrase in that show. Um, so we're here to talk about a a couple of really important topics. One is addiction, the other is trauma. And this is our way of uh, moving into the topic. And you know, you've done a lot of work in the area of trauma and addiction. And yeah, I know you have a lot to say about it, as do I. Uh, tell me what, you know, what comes to mind in terms of what you want our listeners to know. And our listeners could be, you know, professionals. Our listeners could be 
uh, you know, just generally people who are interested in this subject yes. and want to learn about it for themselves or others. So what do you, what would you say are the key things you want to convey to people around, you know, two massive topics, trauma and addiction and how they you know, interrelate to each other? Yeah, no, I, I think that, um, I mean, it's two areas that I'm professionally and, and personally very passionate about. Um, I think that the uh, idea is uh, we'll, we'll start having uh, podcasts that are topic driven when you and I are together and then uh, doing the interviews uh, when we have uh, other guests. And and we we picked this topic as the first one for, for some of the points that you were sharing already, that we both have uh, high interest in this and, and, and some passion for, for talking about it openly. I think one of the challenges with it is that it, it does live in the in the shadows, right? It's not talked about uh, with the openness that it, it it needs to. There's still a lot of stigma attached to it. There's still a lot of uh, lack of understanding around to uh, around addiction and trauma. But one of the pieces that for me, in terms of, of where to start with it, right, to to focus on what you were asking is, I think that and um, how highly related they are to one another. Uh, one of the things that I have found through the years of working, and I've been in the field for about 20 years and a greater part of them working in, in the addiction recovery field, is that it's very rare that you get addiction. And when we say addiction, I just want to clarify real quickly. We're not talking about substance abuse exclusively. We're talking about addictive behaviors in general. So it could be relationships, it could be sex, it could be pornography, it could be work, it could be shopping, it could be gambling. And of course, substances. It, it rarely do you find somebody that has a compulsive addictive behavior and there's not a history of trauma. But one of the things that I have found as well, and, and I'm curious to see your experience, is that a lot of times we get clients coming in uh, for either trauma or relationship problems or situations where life is not functioning. And as you explore deeply, you find the addictive behavior, even though that might not be the presenting problem. They maybe they're coming in for help with, with trauma or pain, or they have some awareness of history that is painful. And then as you're doing the work, you see that there is this place of, of compensating, anesthetizing, surviving through addictive behaviors that might not be substances, as I said before. I agree. I find the same thing that the presenting problem isn't the entire story. It's the iceberg phenomenon. Yes. It's the tip of the iceberg. And you realize there's a lot of submerged content. Uh, and you could approach the person that might be saying, hey, I need help with addiction, but there's trauma. Or um, they say, I need help with trauma if they can name it. And there's really addiction. Uh, it could be you could approach it in one way, thinking you're approaching one issue, but realizing there's both. But I, I what, if, what comes to mind, though, for me is um, how do you define those things? And, and so um, just for people to understand our, our way of looking at it, at least my way of looking at it. So I, I think of trauma as a, as a spectrum disorder. There's a spectrum of anxiety. Trauma's in that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And trauma, you know, we think of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that can come in various forms. And with the way I look at PTSD, in the work I do, and I do this work in so many different ways from uh, neuropsych testing to forensic work to clinical treatment to EMDR to brain spotting to cognitive behavioral therapy to look at what somebody's trauma is. And really, these are unusual, out-of-the-ordinary events 
uh, that can be long-lasting to lead to repeated uh, dreams, thoughts, repetitive feelings, a sense of stuckness or being trapped in the past or not being able to be in the present or fear of these events um, happening again or not being able to move through painful events and not just things we all know, such as, you know, uh, you know, witnessing violence or being subject to violence or rape or assault Correct. or difficult verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse or substance abuse. You know, so these it can, they can be as, it can happen in many ways. And we're talking about something that affects somebody neurophysiologically as well as emotionally, as well as psychologically and spiritually. Yes. And so these things stay with you and you're not always aware that they're with you. Uh, in, ter- in terms of something triggering you that brings you back into your own awareness, perhaps, that, oh, the reason why I'm reenacting this or feeling this or experiencing this is because of an old trauma. And so it's not always name uh, easy to name, easy to identify for the person going through it. All you know is that, hey, I'm anxious, I feel bad, um, there's something familiar in this for me, and I'm stuck in it. And then you look at addiction and how we look at that as progressive, chronic, and fatal. How do you define addiction? Uh, And that also deals with a lot of submerged content because most people, as you know, Raphael, who have an addiction don't think they have an addiction. And most people who have an addiction don't always think about um, the relationship of that to their trauma history. Or they don't realize that there's a chicken and the egg thing, that trauma and addiction are an interrelationship that the more progressive your addiction is, sometimes the more trauma occurs. And the more trauma you've had, sometimes the more you cope with it by anesthetizing and using drugs or alcohol or other forms of addiction. So I just want to put that out there in a really you know, quick way, just my thinking about that, uh, you know, to look at that complex relationship that occurs and how do we define those things. And um, you know, when we're looking at somebody or helping somebody um, through it, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, one of, one of the one of the examples that I use frequently because it, it, it helps me understand it, and I've and I found that it's it's helpful for both clients and people who want to do trainings. That the the way I understand trauma, to your point of it, it could be major events, but it could also be an accumulation of smaller, quote unquote, smaller events. So the way I, I think about it, if you if you think of an individual as a, as a as a thin can, like a soda can, right? And the abuse is a rock, right? And those are those 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 big events, as you were mentioning, like sexual assault or or, or war or a major accident or, or natural catastrophe. That that big rock is going to hit the can, and it's going to hit live a big dent, and 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 that's clearly has reshaping the object because that's what trauma is. It's something that that reshapes how I see myself and how I see the world. So internally and externally reshapes the essence of who I am. So when it comes to those big traumas, it's that big rock hitting the can, and and it's fairly easier to to define. Another way that trauma happens, if you take the same can and just hit it with little pebbles, constantly hit it with pebbles, constantly, constantly hit it with pebbles, eventually that can is going to get reshapen. The challenge here is that it's impossible to find the one pebble that did it, right? So you almost have to look at uh, the accumulation of pebbles to realize, all right, so all of these uh, small events, patterns of relationship, you know, patterns of, of growing up in a home that, that had certain behaviors, certain distance from parents, 
uh, you know, uh, not, not abuse, neglect, but just parent that was emotionally not available, deeply anxious, whatever it might be. It eventually creates enough reshaping and denting in that can that has been, has been affected, but it's really hard to define which event did it. Uh, so, so, so that helps me conceptualize the, the way that we are impacted as human beings by, by our environment, both internally and externally, and it is not always just, just major traumatic events. Sometimes it's, it's a, a consistent pattern of situations. That's a, a lovely way of conceptualizing. I won't even say a little bit of a lovely way of conceptualizing, but a really great way of conceptualizing. <laughs> uh, uh, what's interesting about that is uh, there's some research that looks at um, endemic stress versus acute stress or endemic events versus acute events and which ones cause trauma the most. And often it's those little dents in the can, not the big, big ones. Yes. That causes somebody to suffer. It's all those little dings and the accumulation of them. And not knowing which ding was that threshold point for you, where you went from being resilient and intact to struggling. You don't know which ding did it. And it's really not easy to know. Sometimes clients come in and they want to kick the can down the road and not deal with that. And that's where addiction might come in because... Mm-hmm. You're not you're kicking the can down the road and not really able to deal with the pain while you're anesthetizing, which makes it tricky to get to the underlying trauma as well. To know where the dings are, uh, a simple metaphor I like is the idea of a sponge and that booze or addiction is like a sponge and you put it in the water, it's really heavy. And then when you wring it out, you see where all the holes are, the dings are, if you will. And that's where you can start to do the work when you dry out and you look at where are the holes in myself? Where, where were the dings? Where were the dents? Where they come from? So it's really uh, an interesting way to look at it. Really important in understanding the other part of what we're talking about today. So there's the, the sponge, the can metaphor for, for, the addic- for the trauma, sorry. And then when we look at the addiction piece, and, and for me, I have an interesting perception of addiction. I think that, that we agree that it's a functional behavior until it's not right. right so it's an adaptive behavior that when somebody begins to focus on work focus on school having a couple of drinks and the, the the anxiety the pain is lessened the uncomfortableness with the memories is lessened there is a period a very short period depending on the addictive behavior that it's it is serving the function of helping that person survive for that moment uh, addiction is is mostly uh, a very warm blanket that makes everything melt away. When you hear people describe their relationship with their addiction, sometimes it's it's a, it's a romantic relationship. It's a poem, and it does, for a moment, serve the purpose of helping survive. What happens in the long term, which is normally what you and I see in the office is that that thing that at one point was adaptive, that thing that was helping me survive, ends up with me now having two problems. The the original situation that I was anesthetizing through the addictive behaviors, mm-hmm. and now I have developed a compulsive behavior that starts to 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 permeate life. I like your, your, your analogy of the sponge because you start to absorb 
and then it starts to to affect relationships and people, my health, my finances. So it, it seems that the addiction becomes the problem, but that's as a consequence of something that was at one point uh, almost necessary for survival uh, because there was no other resources. Yeah, one one of my I I think that's a great, uh, beautiful way, poetic way to describe it, and I think that's a an important way to describe it. One of my colleagues, Daniel Lender, uh, has developed this relational model of addiction, um, which I like. It, it's not the only one I ascribe to, but I, it explains some of what you're talking about. Maybe a little differently, but the idea of, a, a, you know, you've talked about this too, I know. And, uh, you, you know, the addiction is your best friend. The, it can be your best friend. It can be the one thing that's always been there for you. Yeah. The one thing you've been able to count on, to go to, uh, to feel better. To, to to not feel, to um, escape, to cope. Um, you know that when you pick up, uh, you can. It's there for you in ways maybe people aren't. Uh, you know, life hasn't been, and it's been it's been there for you during lonely times, hard times, depressed times, anxious times, and it's changed how you feel. In some ways, adaptively. In some ways, for the better. It's allowed you to you know maybe be more open, to share more, to not be as inhibited. Uh, you know, so if you take that idea, you know, that it's always been there for you, maybe more than you've experienced other people being there for you. And I realize I'm saying, you know, by the way, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> just to say for those of you who are following the game along, uh, just so you, I'm aware of that. Um, what was interesting is that how do you, how do you uh, break up that relationship with your best friend? Yeah. How do you how do you let go of that and trust that anything's going to replace it that's any better? Uh, so, so if you're not going to do that, you're not going to be open to facing the pain. Yes. That's there, the trauma that's there, the all the what all that represents. When you think about that, right? This is something I'm very mindful of, and I, and I'm, I invite everybody that's listening to take a moment and just and just consider this perspective when we're working with somebody who who has survived through anesthetizing through addiction and that addiction has become the same place to go it's destructive it's hurtful it's damaging for for the loved ones of somebody with addiction is a very painful place to be that that is true but if, if you think about that person who we're asking them to stop the one thing that has helped them survive the pain of whatever the trauma is, to stop that anesthetizing behavior and just sit with the pain because then things are going to get better. I mean, it's a fairly scary invitation to say, you know, stop doing this thing that, that it's quote unquote working to, to try and heal. Now, you and I think know that it's a worthy invitation because there's there's a sense of hope. And and for me, the greatest tool that I have is hope. Yes. And and I, I'm aware that for a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of times that hope is non existent or it's very, very far gone. So to 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 have this sense that all right, so there is something that the possibility of healing is there 
and that there might be painful moments in that process of healing and and that living in that way of full disconnect or partial disconnect that addiction brings at the end only creates more pain and more suffering so so it's it's a scary invitation but at the same time an opportunity to live that active addiction does not give you that's very well put uh, the begs the next question how do you motivate somebody to sit with pain how do you motivate somebody to give up their best friend yeah how do you get how do you get somebody motivated to um, sit with their trauma or even recognize it's there um, to acknowledge there's a problem uh, whether it's a trauma problem an addiction problem or whatever the yeah. problem might be and one of as we know that's one of the great challenges and i suspect you might share this belief with me that motivational interviewing mm -hmm. uh, is a very effective approach to getting people to begin to sit with the pain to be open to sitting with the pain um, one of the or you may see it differently i don't want to assume that uh, but one, one of the one of the aspects of it that you know i always found interesting was all these different stages that mcclellan talked about which is uh, back University of Pennsylvania did some research and said that there's pre-contemplation, contemplation, you know, all those different stages. And a lot of times people come in denying everything. I don't have a problem. There's no trauma problem. I don't have an addiction problem. Um, it's everybody else's problem. If they just got off my back, I would be okay. It's uh, everybody giving me a hard time um, or coming up with other explanations for it. I'm still working. I still perform my job well. I'm not divorced. I'm not like those other people uh, who really have a trauma, who really have an addiction. I'm not like them. You know, that whole aspect of it. And how do you go from, how do you reach those individuals who are the most typical kind of individuals who come in to see us and get them to um, sit with the pain, to get them to acknowledge uh, their truth? Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a it's a complicated uh, answer to to a complicated problem because, I, as you said, I think that a lot of times what happens to individuals with trauma is that we want to believe it's in the past, so it doesn't matter. We want to believe it made me stronger. Uh, we want to believe, you know, uh, it happened because I was a bad kid, uh, whatever it might be. So. The first part for me is how, how to cre we create enough safety and support for people to be ready to begin to see their reality, which is daunting, right? And, and a lot of times I know that personally, sitting with my reality is not always easy. Being able to look at myself fully and truly, it's not easy. So I think that in that early process, in those early moments, in being able to create enough support and safety for, for people to be able to begin to see themselves. And it's not easy, right? It's not easy uh, for fellow clinicians listening to this. It's not easy for uh, people who are struggling that are listening to this, that 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 first step of reaching out and 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 asking for help and recognizing that there might be something going on here that's not functioning 
sometimes it comes from from the people around us that love us that tell us you know mm -hmm. this cannot continue um you're hurting yourself and hurting someone else and i know you and i a lot of the people that come in that they're coming in because somebody else is uh forcing inviting or encouraging them to go or threatening them to go you know where some level of threat alert, you know, but uh, it's all true. Um, what you're saying is so, you know, it's so much more, so much more to what you're saying than what people might realize. For example, hope, how important hope is, or positive psychology, we call it, but hope that there's something, there's a better outcome there. There's a better experience there. There's something for me in this, that if I really sit, if I trust you, meaning you, the therapist, you, Raphael, Cortina, doc, you know, If I trust you, um, that does require me to feel safe with you. That does require me to know that in this moment, you're not judging me. I am safe with you. You're Correct. really in my corner. Even though you're trying to take away my best friend, even though you're telling me my lifestyle isn't working for me, even though you're trying to, in a way, help me see that my relationships are suffering, I'm suffering, that I trust you, that I feel safe with you to really open up myself to you to allow you to uh, come in and look at, look around at my trauma, look around at my, my habitual behaviors. You know, it's really, it's a big, it's a big ask. And I think we have to really respect the courage of the people coming in, how hard it is for them even to be in the front of us, to talk to us, to open up to us in that first meeting beyond yeah. and um, to discover the resiliency. One of the things that I worked on, uh, that I was really interested in was Bandura's work on self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. And there's two things that really impact me um, in the work I do around addiction and trauma. And one is looking at uh, what I call drug avoidance self-efficacy. What's going to make it efficacy being, uh, I see my efforts can lead to positive outcomes and therefore I'm going to be more invested in those efforts. And that's going to help me prevent relapse or help me prevent making choices that can lead to more of the same. Mm -hmm. So believing in that and that and that's and or working on my trauma, really working on the pain and sourcing it and resourcing myself and using methods such as EMDR or brain spotting or CBT or DBT or whatever method gets me there. How can I really allow myself to um see that that effort of spending time doing this will lead to a good outcome. And then yes. in my own mind, seeing what that outcome looks like for me, what does that look like for me? Um, if I really do this work, put this work in, how can I, my life change? Um, and then doing that uh, sort of uh, cost benefit analysis of that um, is really key for somebody, you know, uh, to do. So the, um, Human potential. I want. I was listening to our podcast, and I realized that I wanted to stress how how critical all the work I do ties into human potential. All the mindfulness work, all the all this work. The reason why I love working with people who have addiction problems and people who have trauma problems is because I see them reach their potential so fast once they source the trauma, once they stop the addiction, and they begin to get on that path the changes are remarkable and they're so yes. 
incredible. Have you found that too to be the case? Yeah, it's it's tremendous. Like one of the things that sometimes I have the fantasy of doing, but for multiple reasons is is, is not okay. Is being able to take a picture of a client on day one, yes, and and six months or a year later, uh, take another picture and show them side by side. Because it's not only the the transformation, it's not only in in behaviors and actions and relationships, it's physical, right? The the skin color changes, the the, the brightness of the eyes, you know, the the, the, the expression, the the way they sit and and, and the openness in the way they sit. So there's a physical transformation that happens. And and I awfully feel honored to be a part of, of, of that transformation and to be a witness of it. So I agree that there is this sense that that one of the things that's very excited about this work is to be able to be of support of somebody that could go from a place of of fairly surviving to fully living their life. West Coast Mindfulness Institute is a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians who are dedicated to learning together and collaborating to better serve our community. WCMI hosts educational events for both clinicians and members of the public to promote learning, growth, and self-awareness. If you're seeking support, follow the link in this episode where our referral specialists will connect you to the right therapist to meet your needs. Visit us at wcminstitute.net. One of the important pieces for me, and, and I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, of our talk today, that uh, I'm very passionate about trauma and addiction. And, and part of the reason is the work that we do in this piece that we're talking about, the transformation. The other part is because I, I, have, I come from a family of, of addicts. You know, uh, my, my uncles, all of them were primary alcoholics. And I remember as a kid growing up in, in, in this environment where it seemed that the normal thing for adults to do was get together and get wasted. And as I got a little bit older and I started to realize, wait a minute, this is not the the only reality. It really, and, and then I would see parts of my uncles that were different when they were sober and when they were not. And and I remember thinking, you know, that, that initially, actually, when I was in school, I said, I'm never working with addiction, right? I'm never going to work with addiction. It seemed like this impossible task. But then in the journey, as I started working, uh, a little bit by chance, a little bit by choice, I ended up working in an outpatient program, a dual diagnosis outpatient program. And I discovered this parts of my, my, we talk in this podcast and we tried to get the, the essence of what are some of those life experiences that, that guided us towards the interest in, in the healing profession and working with people. And unknowingly, there was a part of me that, that really understood uh, addiction. They really understood these relationships with with substances and eventually uh, other types of addictions from that experience of childhood and being able to see, you know, there are there are these wonderful people, this loving man that could turn into this other person that it's so hard to be around. And and I think that in that piece of that transformation that we're talking about, that's the beauty for me that that I get to have those experiences where. I, as a child, I knew intuitively and I didn't know how to manage. And now in my work, I could be a part of somebody's process where they could be more attuned to that genuine self instead of that that other part that was created 
through life challenges as a way of adjusting that it that is so destructive to themselves and others. What was that inflection point where you said, "Hey, I can't do this work. I can't imagine doing this kind of work." Uh, and then you did do the work, you know. So there yeah. was there was a there was a real shift from realizing that it was really a personal journey for you it was really part of your life story and you had a lot of awareness of what it was like growing up in that situation what compelled you to make it your mission to really help others heal more than we've already said from trauma and addiction what do you think that was yeah, you know, I think that that part of it was my own journey to my own health to a certain extent in terms of figuring certain parts of myself. And the other one, uh, when I first started working in this dual diagnosis outpatient program, uh, I remember when I first applied and I got the job, I'm like, you know, I've never done this. Why not? You know, I've always been kind of like a, I'm, I'm up for experiences. I'm up for, for working with all kinds of people. And by the first or second week, I was <laughs> loving it. You know, there was something about how real, how open people in recovery are, you know, how especially in early recovery where there's this this immediate wake up of emotions and feelings and everything's so raw and they have has a hard time managing that, that I realized, you know, th there is really, really wonderful work that can be done. And, 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 and there is a period of of humanity there that, that you get to see what was behind the need to drink. And that's the trauma piece that came later into focus for me. Then it came into focus right there. I mean, I could see it, but it didn't really fully came into focus until a little bit later. But the, uh, Gabor Mate says, instead of asking why the addiction, ask why the pain. And that's for me, what was, what, what was coming up. Right. When I when I was working with people, when I was in that in that early recovery, I was seeing the pain, not the addiction. I was seeing the human being that needed to protect themselves through this very disruptive behavior in order to be safe. A instead of seeing um, something that that was just this ugly monster of addiction, it, it was actually looking behind that and seeing the amount of, of humanity and pain and suffering that was behind that. There's this tendency to judge people who are addicts. Yeah. To see people struggling with addiction as, uh, among some people, uneducated or just uninformed or whatever part of the population that, you know, addicts are people who, um, you know, don't require empathy, sympathy. They bring it on themselves. Yeah. Uh, they're, troubled in some way they're uh they, they deserve some judgment scorn uh they don't have it together uh they, they you know basically they're throwing away their lives or stoners they're not you know they're really dismissing the population and you know making certain judgments about you know the the oneness of everybody i mean the, the thing that was really amazing to me about addiction is that doctors lawyers surgeons uh Postal workers, therapists, uh, everybody, everyone you can imagine who different cultures, different races, different appearances, different life stories, uh, different traumas. Everyone had this shared experience around addiction. Suddenly people from different walks of life, people who 
didn't think they had anything in common, would find commonality in the meeting rooms, that the you know in the in the room of uh, recovery in terms of twelve steps, in the recovery room of an inpatient program, in an intensive outpatient program. Suddenly, you go from seeing everybody is uh, different, nobody gets me, nobody sees my story, to wow, everyone in this room who doesn't look like me, who comes from a different background, we all have the same story in some ways. Yeah, The pain connects us. Yeah. The progressive chronic fatal nature of addiction connects us. The traumas we've gone through, big and small, connect us. Um, the shame connects us. All of it connects us. And there's this not just trauma bonding or addiction bonding, there's something very deep going on. Similar to you, my, the ideology for me, the, uh, I didn't have quote unquote addicts in my family biologically. I did have a step parent mm. who was, was an alcoholic cause he's not alive. Um, he struggled a lot with alcoholism and he was brilliant. You know, he's a lawyer, a uh, brilliant lawyer. And I learned that many lawyers struggle with alcoholism. I didn't realize how many until I got to know his friends and peers and colleagues that the tremendous number of people in uh, law struggle with uh, addiction. In fact, lawyers are among the population of people who are among the highest mm -hmm. uh, abusers of alcohol and other substances. Uh, and so when he was sober, he was this brilliant, relatable, kind, loving person who would get out his red pen and correct my papers and I single-handedly give him credit for raising my SAT scores yeah you know when he was drunk uh, he was somebody who you wanted to run from get away mm. from uh, hide from you don't want you don't want to be around him he became this Jekyll and Hyde character and I realized that I love the sober guy but I really didn't know what to do with the guy who drank uh, and that's not an uncommon story. Yeah. You know, the, there's so many different stories about the trauma. I, I believe I shared this robbery waffle syndrome story with you before, you know, Claudia black story about her experience growing up, the trauma she went through, uh, as a child and she became the seminal figure in addiction and recovery, how she, what brought her to the recovery world was her own trauma, her own mm -hmm. addiction, uh, family addiction history. So, even if we, meaning you and me, aren't specifically in recovery ourselves for drug and alcohol use, we come by it honestly in terms of our families. Um, and there is compulsivity and other things that I, I believe I, I have, and I'm sure you know you might relate to as well. That could be come into that category. I used to be uh, a serious approval addict, needing approval of people. Yeah. Wanting to be liked, wanting to be loved, wanting to fit in. Uh, that's an addiction. Or the what's missing addiction piece that I can relate to that there's always something better out there I need to be striving for. I can't be satisfied with whatever I have. There's something better that's not here. That's a form of addiction. Or sometimes work for me, you know, working yes, excessively definitely. Uh, could be a form of addiction. Uh, codependency, which I definitely have struggled with mightily uh, became an expert at it through practice i became a black belt in codependency from personal experiences <laughs> which was a great gateway drug into the field of addiction and recovery right? yes yes so all that is relevant and uh 
and and as you know, codependency is as deadly as addiction. For oh some yeah, people. people do die oh, yeah. from being codependent. So, and there's a trauma factor with people who are codependent as well. Uh, when I th- think about transformation, going back to what we were talking about before the break, somebody said this is a simple thing to me that I thought was really quite brilliant. He said, if you think about two compounds coming together, like H2O, hydrogen, you know, hydrogen and oxygen coming together, and um, and those two compounds come together and suddenly it forms water, this other element. And so it's been transformed into something like water. And then water is a sustenance for life, for the world, mm-hmm. for everything. Uh, if you reverse engineer it, you know, it's the, it's the separate compounds, but what it becomes is far greater than what it is, sort of like gestalt yeah. therapy, right? So what water becomes is greater than what yes. its elements are. It's transformed. And then from there, Ken Wilber talked a lot about different ideas that, you know, the great philosopher Ken Wilber talked about and physicists, metaphysicists talked about uh, the transformational experience of oneness, of seeing our pain in others, uh, relating to the pain in others, relating to the solutions that people have for their trauma in others. The one thing I was going to say, and I'm going to pause yeah. and let you speak here, that I've learned too is that a lot of people who suffer from trauma um, end up functioning really well. That most of the people who have trauma actually are better for the trauma. If they, particularly if they get therapy, most of the people who get help with addiction and trauma, I think you see this, are far more transformed. Um, than if they never had addiction or trauma in a sense. It's, uh, it, in fact, they can be healthier than uh, what, what people in the recovery world call normies, people who are normal. And that's that, so that you stress versus distress is really interesting to me. What are the stressors and traumas that some people uh, use as adaptive mechanisms for growth and transformation, whereas others are undone by it, they're buckled under by it, they... They get decimated by it. You know, what is our role in helping people take trauma, distress, turning to looking at use stress, looking at these experiences, and how can it, how can those compounds come together and transform that person so that there are substance, there, there's a difference in their substance of character. There's a difference in who they are. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, I mean to your point of, of the of the of the other addictive behaviors. You know, I, I can definitely relate to to the validation piece. I could definitely relate to the work being addictive, especially in the work that we do. That it's so rewarding that that we could get hooked on helping people, right? Which is which is really fascinating to think yeah. about. And, and a lot of times from the outside world, you would not think about that, but it, it could easily become compulsive where, because I think that if you look at addiction as interruption of connection, right? That, that, that's, so it starts serving that purpose that it gets in the way, right? That, that your work becomes so prominent that you're not present in life. And, and I definitely have struggled with that. And, and it's a balance that I'm always working towards. And, 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 and I agree with you that some of the, the most amazing transformations that happens in, in recovery, because the thing about recovery is that if you're in recovery from any addictive behavior, 
you don't have the luxury to hold on to a lot of stuff that's unhealthy, right? Because you, you, what's at risk is your sobriety to whatever addictive behavior is. So I think that that's why some of the healthiest people, some of the healthiest people are people who are in recovery, who have walked through the trenches of human pain and have embraced life. And, and uh, Stephen Porches, has a, who's the, 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 the discoverer, or, or, or he coined the term polybagel theory and has advanced the understanding of the autonomic nervous system in tremendous ways. I love one of his quotes. Is, he says, trauma is a chronic disruption of connectiveness. That's beautiful. That's great. I, and, and it is. And, and, and I think that, that, that for me, that, that, that says a lot. And then if you look at, and, and you, you probably know, and a lot of people have heard of the, the Rat Park experiments, right, by uh, Bruce Alexander, a Canadian psychologist. So I'll give the briefest version for people who haven't heard it and are listening to this. So uh, there was a study done in terms of understanding addiction. So they would give rats uh, water with opiates, with morphine, and they would uh, they would just drink the water with the morphines until they died. So one of the things that they got this guy noticed is like, all right, so the rats that are being given the morphine are in isolation. They're they're in a cage. What would happen if the if we create this rat park with everything that rats love and other rats, and we gave them the option to drink water from the morphine water or regular water? And what they discovered is that the the rats would not use the morphine water. Right. It was like like a, a, a proportional difference. So then we'd say, all right, what if we have an addicted rat that has been using the, the morphine, has become dependent on it, and then we put it back into the rat park. And what they found was that they, they would stop using. Most of the rats would not go back to using the drug. So they started to create this formulation, this idea of what is different. And then Vietnam gave us a human experience of the rat park. And there's this fascinating study where um, about 20% of the soldiers that were in Vietnam were addicted to heroin because they were going through horrific situations and, and talk about traumatic, horrific experiences. Yeah. When they came back, a year later, 95% of them were substance-free. Right. Once again, they were back home. They were back to connectiveness. They were back in a safe place. And and so if you look at trauma, it's a disruption of connectiveness. Right. Addiction is how connection is disrupted. So what what cures us, what heals us is connectiveness. The way you stated that and, and thank you for citing those really important research studies that uh, have such a wide range of impact in how we think about it. When I, um, my, you know, my connection, my connection to this subject comes from, like you, comes from experience of uh, different work environments. And what I observe anecdotally, as well as what I was taught in terms of research. And the work I did at UCSF uh, was really deep for me. It was looking at um, what, what really was a key ingredient for people to be successful in recovery. Mm. How did people, uh, looking at many, many hospitals throughout the Bay Area, and UCSF's a great, you know, program for research in psychiatry and addiction medicine. And what we were doing is we were administering all these different assessment tools and looking at uh, what were the critical pieces that led to people making it not. And the success rates for recovery were so abysmal, 37%, 40% among many people. And then if you look at what were, what were the difference makers? What was the delta between 
people who are 37, 40% chance of being in recovery in their first year of getting help versus 60, 70%. That difference was community, people, connection, support, and what type of support and connection was really interesting. And what it, what we isolated in looking at all this was the family support was critical. Mm. And then recovery support, meaning uh, some mentoring occurring. Yeah. Mentoring was a critical. It wasn't just mentoring from the 12-step program, which is a really great resource for mentoring, a fantastic one, actually, probably mm-hmm. one of the best. But, but it's finding somebody who you could relate to, who's been through this, who you identify with and you want what they have. There's something that they have that you really want. And you're connected to that thing that they have that seems so much more appealing to what you've been through. Um, and by talking to them and relating to them and them sharing their story with you and you're sharing your story with them, that mentoring piece was a game changer for people. And if they even had one mentor or a sponsor and a supportive family structure or partner, uh, it just kept increasing the probability of somebody overcoming their own trauma and history, becoming more than your own story. Yeah. Uh, developing a new story, a new threat. That's fascinating. I mean, and, and it's something that intuitively we know, but it's always fascinating when, when the numbers show that, because I think that as we're looking at this, and I think something that's really, really valuable for me, and we, we talked a little bit about this before, is is who, who's listening to us, right? And and I think that if anybody's listening that can identify with any of these stories, it's such an important piece to realize that that connectiveness, that sense of belonging, right? Because I think that what addiction does as well, it, it gives you a sense of belonging to something. You know, the, the, there's been some fascinating events. I was reading th- this book where, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, I never heard about this before, but in the 1970s, 80s, uh, Canada successfully blockaded any heroin from entering its borders for a period of time. However, there was still heroin that be, was being sold on the streets. So they did some research, and the heroin that be, was being used, the powder, it was all fillers. It had no heroin, no morphine on it. But people were still injecting it and still behaving as if they were getting high, right? So so it left them with this very interesting phenomenon, what's going on? And one of the theories that they came up with is that is the identification with the lifestyle of drug addiction. There's a bigger hook than the substance itself because it's a sense of belonging to someone. And I know that that we see this in recovery, right? We're, we're part of the appeal of addiction. is not just the moment of the high. It's everything around it and is belonging to a group. That's right. A, a common story that we hear, I work with a lot of young men, is I, I felt very awkward, very out of place. I didn't belong in high school. You know, I felt very insecure. I felt like I, I didn't have a place. And then the, the the kids that smoke pot behind the school are always accepting. It's the open group. And I've had a sense of belonging. Now I had a, an identity. I was a pot smoker. So if I stop smoking, I lose myself of identity. It's not just the pot. It's who I am. Yeah. So and, and that for me is such a valuable piece because in reconnecting with your genuine self and the connectiveness with others, that's how we heal 
uh, and how we recover and how we heal trauma. I mean, th there's more to that in order for that openness to happen. But that's the essence of basic human connection. I, I, I like what you're saying. And what we're trying to do with this podcast, I think, is build human connection. <clears throat> we're, we're, as we're discussing this, we're connecting. As we're discussing this, we hope somebody, whether it's a therapist or uh, a, somebody who's struggling with addiction or trauma, connects to what we're saying and then connects to somebody who can provide the help whether in whatever format. And I was, I wanted to speak to uh, the way that mm -hmm. I find myself being effective and helping people with this just for a minute. And I want to hear your thoughts about it because we all work differently. We all have our own different roads to Rome, so to speak, but there are some common commonalities as we you know move toward it. Um, what has brought it together for me is, uh, and I experiment with many different models of psychotherapy, and I probably include a bit of all of them. I'm eclectic like a lot of us. So I think there's a place for CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and acceptance commitment therapy, and uh, you know mindfulness, obviously. I'm a big believer in mindfulness, uh, as well as many other as well as depth work, you know, psychoanalytic work has its place. Gestalt therapy has a huge place. But one of the areas that has really worked effectively for me has been IFS, internal family systems work. Sure. And that's the, the model that I've moved toward because I like what Richard Schwartz has done in his writing and his work in terms of looking at, um, well, how he originally started his models working with people with eating disorders, which is a very addictive thing. Yeah whether it's overeating or anorexia or bulimia, uh, any, that's where he did a lot of his work and experiment what what worked in those environments and was able to free people from really such a difficult thing to free yourself from. All the areas that are challenging to work with, I think eating disorder is one of the most challenging for most therapists to be feel effective yeah. because it's such a, not only is it a, an addictive compulsive pattern with a, unique trauma linked to it. Yes. Uh, getting people to change that compulsivity is really critical for their own, for, the, for their livelihoods. They can stay alive. Uh, and if it doesn't work, it's very consequential. And it's very painful to watch people become emaciated or to see people go in the other direction. Uh, there's such a physicality to it um, that's really profound and felt. So he made an impact in that environment. And a lot of the people who struggle with eating disorders also struggle with drugs and alcohol as well. Correct. And other disorders. And clearly most of the people who are there had traumas. And then when he started to look at the trauma history and what helped, what made a difference, uh, you know, like many great discoveries, he just stumbled upon how we have to really have a sense of internal belonging. Yeah. And you were describing that a little bit a while ago the sense of connectedness to ourselves as well as what's outside of ourselves. And then the idea that we have many parts and some of the parts that we have can be divided into many categories. He identified a few, uh, one, you know, categories, exiles, parts of ourselves. We push away difficult emotions, uh, could be good emotions, positive emotions, as well as negative emotions, firefighters, which is referring to the part of us that has to deal with addiction, you know, wanting to you know, get loaded and use whatever format, as well as managers, other parts of ourselves. Uh, and then looking at what he called 
the part of us that we want to ultimately default to, which is uh, our self-leadership mm-hmm. or bodhisattva self or our Christ-centered self or the CEO inside of ourselves yeah. or um, our best version of ourselves that can lead us, lead the parts through difficult moments. But these parts become splintered and disconnected and uh, unraveled due to trauma. Yes. And each part has a story, a history, an ideology, something to share with us or to share with the self. And if the self can hold those parts lovingly in awareness, loving awareness, and gingerly uh, help those parts along so they don't have to be in charge, but the self is in charge, then there's this internal cohesion that can happen where somebody can ultimately lead themselves. And what I like about Recovering the 12-step model is that the steps are so deep and profound. One of the things it does is it it does two things right away. It, it deals with the ego yeah. state, uh, our defenses. It allows vulnerability to come through right away by admitting we're powerless, mm-hmm. powerless, uh, powerless over drugs and alcohol, et cetera. And immediately have to get in touch with your own humility and deal with your own ego issues and your need to not end the relationship to the addiction uh, and to realize that that relationship might have to end in order for you to start a relationship with yourself, your healthier parts and the healthier parts of your life, the people in your life. Yeah. And the IFS model works beautifully with this. And when somebody becomes internally integrated, what I call vertically integrated, that you belong within yourself, you have self-worth. And so the self-leadership is, you know, being confident, being clear, being caring, conscientious, you know, all these other curious, all these things that Schwartz talks about. When we come from that place with love and awareness and consciousness, we have a sense of internal belonging. And when we belong to ourselves and we have a sense of self-belonging, then we can say goodbye to this old friend, drugs and alcohol, be able to break up the relationship with it and connect to the healthier parts of ourselves and other people. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was a great uh, explanation and, and summary of, of IFS, that it's a very deep-rooted uh, uh, therapy, and it has a lot of depthness, and, and, and we could probably spend a whole episode talking about, about yeah. it, right? But I think it, it is, uh, an, uh, uh, what I like about IFS, and, and, and from the Gestalt model, we, we have some similarities. I think the difference is that, uh, we, we might talk about different parts of the self, but not necessarily with specific labels, but beyond that, we're very similar. But the reality of how there are different parts that are at play, and at times you have those polarities, right, where, where there's a part of you, and I think it's very common, right, there's a part of you that, that realizes that you want to get sober, but there's a part of you that, that wants yes. to keep on doing what you're doing and doesn't want to stop. And and I have had clients say, you know, I, I, I feel that if I stop, I'm going to die. Uh, or I'd yeah. rather be miserable than give it up, you know, because that's the depthness of the of the of the addiction hold. That the the fear of the pain that comes with sobriety sometimes just keeps this destructive behavior going. Also, the perpetuation of addiction creates trauma in and of itself. So, yes, even if trauma is at the source of pain or causes pain, and the pain leads to self-medicating or using substances to, to push the pain away. The struggle of addiction leads to more trauma and more pain. 
and it becomes a circular process of uh, engendering more trauma as you're trying to maybe deal somewhat with the old trauma. And now you have more trauma. And I think that's one of the big things that is shifting uh, or finally shifting in the world of recovery that there's finally an understanding and an integration of the trauma work, right? We're finally beginning to to make it to a little more mainstream that that if you are working in recovery, you need to do trauma work, right? Because if not, you're just treating the symptoms, but not the cause. Uh, I, I met this guy yesterday, uh, TJ Woodward, who created a program called Conscious Recovery. And it was a very, very interesting uh, conversation that, that, that I was having with him, and, and he was giving a little bit of a talk because it's this, this model that is based on that on that trauma work piece being integral in the, in the part of recovery. Uh, and it was really great to see that that is being adopted in a lot of the the, re, the um, rehabilitation centers and, and and residential programs that there is a much more of a bigger curriculum to include the trauma work as part of your recovery, which I think it's is key and so much an important thing to to open the door to. And, and I think to your point earlier in terms of, of the listeners that uh, for us there are in the field that are listening to this, I think that we have an understanding and we have the, the onus of the responsibility to be more aware of the trauma work. And for the, the, those people who are listening and, and, and searching for a place of possibly, you know, a realization that I might, might be a place for me to get support, to get help, I think that that's the piece where I know you and I have a, a similar perspective on, on hope being such an important part of our work. And and hope is one of the cornerstones yeah. of doing this yeah, podcast. Exactly. That is bringing people to the field of psychology, hopefully in a way that it's easy to comprehend and relate to, that you could actually see the humans that are behind the, the chair in, in therapy. So it becomes more accessible for people. So there's a sense that that healing, that recovery, the living a full life, it's possible. And for me, that's what hope is. And that 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 is the most important piece of the work that that we do is is to keep hope handy, to keep hope around. Yeah, hope is essential. Uh, as you know from your work experience, if you don't instill hope, yeah relatively soon in the process, you're going to lose the client. If they don't see that the effort yes. leads to get outcome, game over, right? That they have to have that sense of hope. And the other thing I want to just touch on too, and you sort of, you were talking a while ago about polyvagal theory, which is really important discovery regarding trauma. The, the part of what happens here in recovery is that the brain has to heal. The brain has to heal because there is a brain injury from addiction. And one of the challenging things in my work doing neuropsych testing on people is that, you know, there's many different schools of thought about this, but you can't really get an accurate reading on somebody's mental, emotional yeah. state for a period of time until the drugs are out of the system. And even after the drugs are out of the system, a lot of people report brain fog or a sense of disconnection uh, disorientation, surrealism, you know, lots of different ways they describe it, not being online, being partially offline, different ways that people describe it. But there's, there's a, the 12 steps I think are designed in the way they are because it's concrete. 
and people can grab onto it very easily, even yeah. in the less than ideal mental state. And then when they're when you're in a better mental state and you look back at the concrete nature of the 12 steps, there's a layers and layers and layers of depth to it that are very profound and deep and have far greater meaning. And so the neuroplasticity that occurs as a result of recovery is essential. When you look at the MRI images of the brain, and you've seen this, when you look at the trauma brain versus a normal brain, yes. there's a different structure to the brain. Then uh, you can see it. Anybody can see it. You don't have to be a radiologist or a neuropsychologist. Any, anybody, any lay person can see it. Yeah. Go to the amen.org and you look at his slides. You can, everybody can see that in a minute. And you look at addiction brain and you look at a normal brain or you look at it starts to become the you know, picture tells a thousand stories. You see all this very clearly. So what's really amazing is doing some testing on somebody, either a spec scan or neuropsych testing or both pre and post recovery, pre and post trauma. And the areas of the brain that are impacted by trauma, a lot of times the limbic system and different parts of the brain. Uh, it's clearly the, you know, uh, the frontal cortex is impacted, different areas I can name. All these areas start to heal and improve. And then there's a greater connectivity neurochemically in the brain. So it's connection within the brain. It's also connection to parts within yourself. It's also connection to people. It's a connection to a mentor. It's a connection to your family. Yeah. It's a connection in many cases to your higher power. And all those connections um, often occur concurrently in ways not so obvious to the person. Yeah. And, and one of the big things that, that is happening now, and I know you and I have seen it and talked about it, is that one of the biggest disruptions of contact in human history has happened in the last year and a half in this pandemic, right? Where isolation has been required for periods of time. And, and I think that's one of the challenges that, that we have seen for a lot of people who had these struggles and these challenges with connectiveness. And in recovery or not, or, or with challenges with trauma or not, uh, now that the, the world's opening up and who knows for how long and all this thing is, I, I think that that's a big component that we have to be aware on how our, our human psyche as a society, not just as individuals, I'm sorry, individual, individuals has been impacted by, by the pandemic that we're in, by, by the, 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 the separation with other humans that we have experienced. And, and I think it's just something to be mindful and, and, and even more so the, the opportunity to begin to reach out and, and figure out ways of, of managing and healing versus in staying in this in this constant disconnect from others and and obviously with with all the appropriate safety guidelines but the the importance of of human connection if at any time we could be aware of it is now yeah you're touching on a very well huge topic that we have to address which is i call it the plague and you know humorous terms but i guess but we're all going through this plague uh, you know we have the we have this delta variant that comes on the heels of the other original variant. And then there's a new variant coming after the Delta variant that we're anticipating coming. We just ran a 26 mile race, a marathon, thinking we were done if we were double vaccinated, only to be told, nope, you're not done. 
you have to put masks back on. Uh, you have to be careful about who you socialize with and how you probably are going to have to go back into the isolation chamber again. Uh, it's possible that businesses might have to go back to what we did before to be prevented. Schools have to be careful. Uh, all these things are coming into question again. Uh, without pretending I'm, you know, Fauci, which I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert on the subject. I'm just, but what, what we know is that the isolation is not just in terms of trauma and addiction, but in general in psychology, that if you look at anybody who's isolated at any stage in their life, there's a greater probability they're going to have mental illness yeah. or emotional distress. And then we look at the demand for psychological services is off the charts. Why? Because of social isolation. Yes. Why, how many clients have said to you, I can't stand Zoom sometimes. I'm Zoomed out. I can't deal with the video anymore. I want to talk to you on the phone. I'm sick of seeing myself on a video screen. Uh, I, I, I really want to see you in person. But, they, but then they're in person, and the only safe way to see them in person might be if you're both wearing masks, and then you miss all the visual cues. And then they go, well, maybe it's better to be on the screen. You know, I'll go back to the screen, or I'll go back to a phone call, whatever. And these are all attempts to cut down on the social isolation and the work we're doing. Then you look at things like meetings, 12-step meetings. They're being done online versus in person. I'd be really curious to see what the research says, you know, two, three, four years from now, were the online meetings as efficacious as the in-person meetings? Uh, was a relapse rates stronger during this period of the plague versus before or after? How did people successfully become resilient with the isolation piece? Correct. Who are those people? What do they do differently? than the other people. There's so many questions that we need to learn from this yeah. experience that we're in the middle of it. We're, it's like, it's like trying to, you know, the old metaphor about you're, you're trying to change the engine on the plane while it's in mid flight. So we're trying to sort all this out while we're in it. We're in it. We're in the middle of it, trying to figure it out. And this is a, this is a, a, a trauma on a massive level for everybody. Uh, even if you're coping well with it and you're finding bliss within the, you know, this experience, which some people are, it's still a trauma on a collective level. And then there's also this issue of the news, which can become a source of addiction. And so a lot of people are trauma bonding by looking at the news online, by going to their favorite news sources. And that can be very triggering for a lot of my clients, too which is going to the, the news sources to understand where, where the plague is at. When's it going to be done? Correct. When's it going to be over? When's the next vaccine? Is there going to be a booster? Can I get a booster? Do I have to, if I'm immune compromised, do I get a booster? If I don't qualify, am I a goner? Do I send my kids to school without masks? Is the principal going to say I can send my kids to school without a mask or not wear a mask? This is so challenging for people right now. And, and I think that it, it, it's just being able to have the awareness that we are being impacted by this in, 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 in many, many ways and in, in, in personal ways by uh, some people have lost loved ones to, through COVID. They're the, the not seeing your loved ones for a year and a half and, 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 and that social disconnect. And I think the the piece that that comes for me, and 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 I think we we need a whole episode just on 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 talking about the the pandemic. And 
But I think the the piece that comes to me in in, in the topic of of trauma and addiction is that the the awareness that that needs to be heightened about the fact that we are being affected by this, and this is the time, if any, this is the time to reach out for help to friends, to family, to social support, yes. uh, of course, to 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 therapists. Uh, to to spiritual counselors, yes. you know, to anybody that the human contact that as best as possible needs to, especially if, if we go through this again, and, and I guess we don't know, is we 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 all need to be very aware of how much we need other humans, and not to to see that as a vulnerability, but a strength that 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 we could reach out to our neighbor and and support each other through this process because i think that that my my i talked about hope before and and my hope is that this is going to teach us some significant lessons about humanity about the world about connectiveness about taking care of one another about valuing human interactions and i'm truly hopeful that that those lessons will will prevail once life comes back, because it will, we just don't know when. You know, well, one of the things I want to say, you know, necessity is a mother of invention, and this is a time for being inventive and creative. Uh, some of the greatest works of art, yeah. discoveries in science, yes. come from moments like this that we're in right now, including in our own field of psychology. We will discover things from all this that we will be using for forever. And I also want to instill hope in people listening to this that I'm hopeful. Uh, I've seen it, the clients I work with, uh, people in the recovery community, people who've gone through traumas or are going through a trauma from this uh, meta experience we're all in. People really reaching out and connecting in deeper ways than ever, getting closer to their families, closer to their parents, closer to their kids, valuing their friendships more. Uh, really reaching out in ways they haven't. I've seen a lot of people cope with this by leaning in versus leaning out. And that's encouraging for me that there is a, uh, a way that people are uniting and coming together and putting aside pettiness at times and grievances at times and putting other people first. So yeah. there seems to be a collective healing and, and, and also with our even I want to say on an ecological level with the planet, on a planetary level, looking at, thinking about that level of consciousness as well, that we're connected to earth, we're connected to trees and water and plants and nature. And if we don't realize that that connection is just as important as a human connection, then we're missing a bigger part of this, that all that connectivity is important for our own survival. And so I, there's, a, there's a lot of people are becoming more aware of environmental issues right now as this is all going down. So I see this as a moment of higher levels of consciousness, of evolutionary consciousness that is occurring. And hopefully you know, on, a, a, on a smaller level, you know, we are able to, as, as clinicians, as therapists, psychologists, to really build that connectivity among um, people in recovery through the work we're doing. And I'm grateful for our connection. Yeah. That you and I found a way to stay connected. Definitely. 
and uh, come together and using this podcast forum to really to reach out and to inform and to hopefully create healing for people who wouldn't have it. Yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm thinking about we we started talking about trauma and addiction, and and this awareness of how important it is to bring in consciousness and to talk about it openly and to instill hope and to look at all the ways that it affects us, but also all the ways that it empowers healing. And we close it now with with a very broad global experience of of trauma and challenge, like a pandemic is. And once again, the 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 closing thought for me is that the the similar thread is that it's an opportunity for growth and for connectiveness and for challenging ourselves to not stay in the stuckness that requires bravery and vulnerability because you cannot be vulnerable without being brave, and and that is hopefully the the message that that our listeners can take away that. As we're talking about this very challenging place of of, of the work of recovery and, and and coming out of a place of darkness and facing the pain and facing the challenges and healing through all that and living in the world that we are right now, that all of that comes down to the 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 benefit from that. It's being able to be fully in life and and experience hope and experience connectiveness. And that is why it's worth it. And you want to go through this being fully present, not under the influence of either trauma or addiction, but fully present. And so that's why it's so vital that the things we're talking about uh, are uh, operationalized for the people listening, either the clinicians or the people seeking the support. Yes. Thank you, Jim. It's always has been a pleasure to spend this time with you and, We'll do this again. Back at you, sir. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you for listening to Shrinks Wrap. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Bramson, you could visit his website at drbramson.com. If you'd like to know more about me, Rafael Cortina, you could visit my website at in-sitetherapygroup.com. Or you could follow the link in our bios in the description of this podcast. As always, please rate and review. Your opinions are really important to us. Thank you for listening and see you next time.